Amen. Please be seated, everyone, and please take your scripture and turn uh, with me in the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be reading this morning verses 13 uh, through 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, we continue our journey uh, through this letter uh, of the church uh, in the world, a church being persecuted for the faith, a church living in a hostile uh, culture, uh, strangers in the world, yet, as we've seen, chosen by God, gathered in by God uh, to be his Uh, to be his very own. And so this is the word of the Lord that comes to us from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can sing together of our desire to live Uh, for Jesus. And we know, Lord, that you mold us and shape us and work that conviction in us as you apply your word to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray again that whoever we are today, whatever reason we thought we came to this place of worship, that you by your spirit would get a hold of our our hearts and minds today uh, through your word, that we might see you better, that we might love you more, and that we might go forth to serve you with all that we have. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever um, started a new book, a new novel, or maybe a a juicy uh, theological book? And, um, you know, you've opened, you don't use the word juicy, I know, for theological books, but I do. And, uh, you know, you turn to the first, you turn to the first page, and you begin uh, reading, and you find that the book uh, starts this way. Uh, Therefore, that ever happened? Probably not, right? You don't usually start a book and the first word is therefore, because, uh, as you know, the word therefore assumes that uh, something has proceeded. Now, we just read a passage of scripture that is, has uh, imperatives, that is, commands for us, and it's important for us to remember that all the imperatives of scripture come to the Christian believer beginning with a therefore. That's important because um, the point is the call to Christian living can only come to a Christian. Only the one who has everything that Peter has been describing in verses 1 to 12 is able to respond to this call. Now, for, for the congregation who's been there, you know what those verses are. If you're visiting today, you'll have to catch up on those. Um, but those are very important. 
Only those who, for instance, as Peter's told us, find their identity in Christ. Uh, Only those who have been born again. Only those who have faith in Christ. Only those who love Christ. Only those who are rejoicing with joy, inexpressible and filled with glory. Only those who have received salvation. Only those who have received grace. That's who this call comes to. And we remembered, right, prophets searched into that grace. Preachers proclaim that grace. The Holy Spirit reveals it and enables us to believe it. Angels long to look into it. Uh, But only those who have received this salvation and grace can hear and respond to this call. These folks, therefore, are called to a certain kind of life. But you and I must start with the indicatives of the gospel. That is what God has done, what we've just read in verses 1 to 12, before you come to the imperatives. You must start with what God has done in Christ and by His Holy Spirit before you come to what you and I must do and are enabled to do in response to what God has done. Which means, of course, the first question for you is not, how can I live as a Christian, but am I a Christian? That's the first question we all have to answer. Have I been born again Is this my identity, that I am in Christ, belong to Christ, have faith in Christ, love Christ, and have by faith received this salvation and grace? Have I confessed my utter helplessness apart from Christ, and have I accepted and received, and am I resting upon Christ alone for my salvation? For such, there is a therefore. We saw in verse 13 that we are therefore called as Christians to wear the girdle of grace. Remember that? Uh, We've got to get everything tucked up, uh, our minds, our hearts, our lives tucked up so that we are surrounded uh, by the grace of God. We need to prepare our minds for action. We need to be sober-minded. That is, there's work to be done. And like the Apostle Paul, grace does not make us presumptuous Christians or lazy Christians or unmotivated Christians or indifferent Christians, but it makes us work uh, harder than anyone else. Right? That's what the Apostle Paul said. I worked harder than them all, all by the grace of God. So you've got your girdle on. You've got, uh, you've got grace in the past. You've got grace today. You've got grace to be revealed in the future. And last time we saw that our hope is set fully, completely, unreservedly on grace. Not hope in ourselves, not hope in other people, not hope in the government, not hope in America, not hope in men, not hope in our works, but hoping fully in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Grace that has been brought to us, is being brought to us, will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. So remember, this is a letter to Christians living in a hostile world. So that's how uh, we go forward and live as Christians, girdled by grace. That's how we face the future. Uh, Grace surrounding us, grace below, above, behind, before, centered in Jesus Christ, prepared for action. So, What does a life girdled with grace, prepared for action, that's received salvation and grace, uh, what does that look like? Well, it is a life no longer futile, but fruitful. This is where the Apostle Peter takes us. Two things this morning. First of all, if the truth of Jesus Christ's life and suffering and death and resurrection mean anything to you and to me, There will be, says Peter, holiness of life. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's taken, of course, from the book of Leviticus. As he is holy, says Peter, you also be holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Which is simply to say Christians will bear, says Peter, the family likeness. No one who learns to delight in the holiness of God, said one person, no one who learns to delight in the holiness of God can ever be content with ungodliness in themselves. Right? If you learn to, to love and to rejoice in uh, the holy God who saved you through the work of his Son, uh, you will never be content with ungodliness in your life. We look at him, we live close to him, Peter says we will become like him and we will begin to bear the family likeness. Now, you, you know how this works. This works with couples when they get married. Uh, husbands and wives, after they've been married together for a little while, uh, right? They, start, they, they know each other better and they start to, you know, for instance, finish off one another's uh, sentences. Um, sometimes, I've had it in the past where, uh, um, you know, someone will call us up, I'll answer the phone and they'll say, oh, hello, Lisa. So it's like, What? You mean I'm actually starting to sound like my wife? Yes, that happens too. And uh, you start to share the same kind of sense of humor uh, of each other, aghast. You know, these are difficult things for us, but it happens. Um, we bear the family likeness even in, even in marriage, our children, of course. But it's the same uh, for the Christian. Now, the holiness of God, of course, is not a popular subject today. It never is. Books about the holiness of God are a lot more difficult to sell than books about the helpfulness of God. Uh, you know what the helpfulness of God is. God is helpful to have around. He helps our families. He helps our marriage. He helps our business. He helps our self-esteem. He helps us feel better. Uh, it reminds me of the, the little children's song. I'm looking at some people with little children, but back when I was a dad with little children at home, uh, some of our children watched a show called Doc McStuffins. Ever heard of Doc McStuffins? I'm seeing lots of blank stares. Well, Doc McStuffins, the favorite song on that show was, Doc's the one who makes you feel better. You know, that was, the, that was the little rhyme that children learned. Doc's the one who makes you feel better. Helpful God. He helps us be more productive. He helps us to cope with life. The helpfulness of God. And so you will find books about God in the self-help category of online bookstores. Um, that's where you'll find books about God. Self-help. We're comfortable with this kind of God. He's the kind of God who we like to have around sometimes when we're really in a pinch. He's the kind of God who's always affirming us. He's always patting us on the back. He's such a nice guy. Always saying nice things to us that we like to hear. He's the helpful God. And people shrink away from any thought of the holiness of God. The holiness of God, of course, as R.C. Sproul taught us so wonderfully when he was on this earth is traumatic to an unholy people, right? We're sinners. So that's why this is a difficult thing for us. Um, we tend to think of the holy God as the cruel taskmaster of the Old Testament. Um, you know, the authoritative parent who's always making demands of his children. The tyrant who expects the impossible, sets impossible standards that no one could possibly reach. The kind of God that's completely foreign to us and way up in the clouds. He's removed from the world. He's uninterested in anything going on here on the earth. That's what some people think about a holy God. And some would say he's completely irrelevant for my life. And so folks choose the helpful God 
over the holy God. And even in the church, people are tempted in this direction. We like God to be helpful, but we're not all sure that we want him to be holy. Now, holy, of course, just means, in the Old Testament especially, it means separate. It means to be set apart from all else. How? Well, of course, God is set apart in his purity. He is light and life. He is righteousness. Uh, it means to be set apart from, from sin. Speaking of R.C. Sproul, he wrote this. I believe that the greatest chapter ever written in the English language is the chapter of Moby Dick, titled The Whiteness of the Whale. Here we gain an insight, said Sproul, into the profound symbolism that Herman Melville employs in his novel. In this chapter, Melville writes this, But not yet have we solved the incantation of this whiteness and learned why it appeals with such power to the soul, writes Melville, and more strange and far more portentous, why, as we have seen, it is at once the most meaning symbol of spiritual things, the whiteness, nay, the very veil of the Christian's deity, said Melville, and yet should be as it is, the intensifying agent in things, the most appalling to mankind. Wonder ye, then, at the fiery hunt. Now remember, Captain Ahab is trying to kill the whale. And Melville's talking about the whiteness of the whale. There's a certain glory about it, but also something in man that makes him want to destroy it, you see. Sproul says this, If the whale embodies everything that is symbolized by whiteness, that which is terrifying, that which is pure, that which is excellent, that which is horrible and ghastly, that which is mysterious and incomprehensible, does he not embody those traits that are found, says Sproul, in the fullness of the perfections in the being of God himself? Who can survive the pursuit of such a being if the pursuit is driven by hostility? Only those who have experienced the sweetness of reconciling grace can look at the overwhelming power and sovereignty and immutability, immutability of a transcendent God and find their peace rather than a drive for vengeance. See what he's saying? The whiteness of the whale, well, in our natural, we want to kill it even though it's glorious. But uh, doesn't this speak to us of God? He's so glorious, he's so excellent, he's so pure. And the only way we can be drawn to that is if we have received grace. So if you are the believer of 1 Peter 1, 1 to 12, and you hear this call about be holy as I am holy, that's something you, you welcome because you yourself have received the grace of this holy God in Jesus. Now, of course, Israel faced the challenge of God's holiness in the Old Testament. How are they going to have fellowship with a holy God? Well, of course, God provided all the sacrifices for them. That without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no, there's no communion with God. All of it pointing to Jesus who was to come. And through Jesus, this life with the holy God is possible. Listen to what Peter says, right? Verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So this is all changed now for the person who knows God, who's received grace in Christ, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And Romans 8 tells us that he has given us of his spirit that we might live holy lives before him. To be holy, friends, simply testifies to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because the Bible says where God is, there is holiness, separateness from sin, purity, 
light, life. And his people are called to holiness of life. Notice what Peter says, in all your conduct. It simply means in all you do. The word conduct there just means in everything you do. How you speak, how you, how you live. It's not just spiritual stuff. It's not just holy on Sunday. It's business, it's school, it's work, it's entertainment. Uh, it's holy in all you do. Said George Whitfield, the great evangelist, have always before you the unspeakable happiness of enjoying God. Be daily endeavoring to give up yourselves more and more unto him. And consequently, always preparing yourselves for a fuller sight uh, and enjoyment of that God in whose presence there is fullness of joy. And at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen and amen, says Whitfield. Our greatest joy is found in his glory. And he is glorified in us when, when we reflect something of his holiness. Friends, in other words, we must live here out what we already are in Christ. That's what Peter is saying. You've received grace. Now, because you are in Christ, united to him, you belong to him. Where God is, the spirit is. As he is holy, you too are called to be holy. Uh, John Murray, professor at Westminster Seminary in a former day, said this, there's no truth more suited to impart confidence and strength, comfort and joy in the Lord than this one of union with Christ. Through faith, we're united to Christ. It also promotes sanctification, not only because all sanctifying grace is derived from Christ as the crucified and exalted Redeemer, but also because the recognition of fellowship with Christ and of the high privilege it entails incites, motivates us to gratitude, obedience, and devotion. Nothing more motivating to the Christian, Murray simply saying, that we are recipients of grace. We are in Christ. We belong to Christ. And so we, we are in fellowship with him. And so as he is holy, so we desire and are called to be holy because we're united to him and we represent him. There's nothing... Um, uh, more terrible or grotesque, we could say, than to misrepresent the one to whom we belong. I had this uh, way back in the, I think it was the 80s. I was a young tot, uh, well, a little higher, I guess. And uh, we lived in Canada, and the Olympics were coming on, and uh, Ben Johnson was running for Canada in the 100-meter finals, and Ben Johnson was the best runner in the world. And so all of Canada, um, you know, watched those Olympics in, I think it was 1984, because he represented us, and, and he won, and he just, he, he blew away the field. Carl Lewis, I think, was the American at the time, but um, anyway, uh, but, but Ben Johnson won, only to find out, a, I don't know, a month or two later, that the reason he won was because he was on steroids, and the whole country did what you just did. Oh. Imagine a member of the Supreme Court showing up at your door with a bottle of whiskey in the left hand, pornographic magazine in the right hand, dressed in torn clothes, breath smelling like something that just died on the road, and you open the door and he greets you, hello, I'm here on behalf of the Supreme Court. You'd shut the door. We're called into service the Bible says, by the king himself. And if the truth as it is in Jesus means anything to you, 
If you've received grace, you've received salvation, you're united to Jesus Christ, Peter's saying, if, if that means anything to you, there will be holiness of life. And this is all, of course, in contrast uh, to what we are and were apart from Christ, which Peter mentions in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed, don't follow that same pattern, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There's an old life for everyone who receives grace. There's an old pattern of living, there's an old pattern of loving, there's an old pattern of thinking for all of us apart from Jesus Christ. And you, in Christ, says Peter, are children of the Father. Jesus Christ is your older brother. Don't be conformed to the passions, the loves, the desires of your former ignorance. That is, there's an old you. And there's a new you. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone, notice that language, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. That means it's dead. And behold, the new has come. And then Paul says, all this, remember, all this is from God. You're not what you once were. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself because there's this sin keeping us from fellowship with the holy God. But he reconciles us through the blood of Jesus. He ransoms us from our sin. And Peter says he ransoms us from that futile way of life. He is our justification, and He is our sanctification. He ransoms us so that we might be obedient children with new passions, no longer, says Peter, living in ignorance. You see that? Christians live differently, they love differently, and they think differently in Christ. No longer according to the passions of our former ignorance. Right? Mind, heart, and will. If you receive this salvation and grace... Friends, there will be holiness of life. Don't worry, there's only two points this morning. This is the second point. Secondly, if the truth of Jesus Christ's life and suffering and death and resurrection mean anything to you, there will be fear of God. There will be fear of God. Notice what he says, verse 17. And if you call, so if this is you, if you're a Christian, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourself, same word as above, in all your living, conduct yourselves with fear. Ooh, that seems strange. With fear throughout the time of your exile, for as long as you're on planet Earth, for as long as you're living in the United States of America or anywhere else, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, this is why, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So there's a, there's a reason here that you're to be holy, and there's a reason here that you are to live in fear, the Bible says, throughout your time in this life. Now, it's very interesting, of course, what the Apostle Paul's reasoning is here. He calls upon Christians to go about their daily living, their daily conduct, living in the United States, their daily work, their daily walking with God in fear. In fear. Fear of God. Fear, of course, just means uh, here a sense of awe and reverence. There is 
uh, non-Christian fear, and there is Christian fear of God. The non-Christian fear of God we find throughout the Scripture, that is the fear of judgment. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's just told you in, in the beginning of this chapter that you've been born again, and that all your sins have been cleansed and washed away. You're living with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. So why would he say live in fear? Well, he's not talking about living in fear of judgment for your sin. But he's talking about that you as a Christian, me as a Christian, having received grace, conduct my life uh, in this world in the fear of God. Not in the fear of judgment, but in reverence and awe before God. Always with an eye to God. And the reason is, the Bible says, you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus. And you're no longer what you once were. You are a new creature in Christ. See, that's the thing. The work God's done in you, if you're a Christian, if this is you, he hasn't you know, bought you with silver and gold. It wasn't like a money transaction. He, uh, he gave right, his only son over to death to purchase you. That's what Acts 20.28 20, says. Paul talks about the church, and he talks about the church, which God bought with his own blood. So you're to be holy as he is holy. You're to live in fear all your life, in reverence and awe before God, because you were bought by God with the blood of Jesus. And you belong, you see, uh, to him. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The preciousness then of the sacrifice means our daily walk with God must be likewise precious to us. If you move into a new home, let's say, and your neighbor comes over to greet you and says, hey, listen, before you moved in, before you moved into your house, I found a quarter on your property, and so I wanted to, wanted to make sure you, know, you got your quarter. And you might say, oh, well, thank you. That's, that's very kind. That's very kind of you. But if instead you move into, you move into a new house, um, and uh, you're in that house because you, know, you received a letter one day that this home and property has been, been given to you, but you just, needed to, you just needed to move in. And so you move into the house. Your neighbor comes over. Instead of having a quarter, they say, well, um, I'm, the one who, I'm the one who's given you this house. And you say, what? You'd be grateful. So much so, I would think, it would influence your relationship with that neighbor because of the, the preciousness of what they've given you. You see, and you're going to, when you see them, you're going you're to wave. How are you doing today? Would you like to come over for a meal? Could we spend some time together? Or as Jesus said, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. He has been forgiven much, that is, given much grace, and knows they've been given much grace. Jesus said, loves much. Not ransomed with silver or gold, but the spotless lamb and the precious blood of Christ. And notice again what we're ransomed from, from the futile ways. Not here from our sin. We are ransomed from our sin, 
But here the Bible says what Jesus has done on the cross is not just so that your sin can be forgiven. What Jesus has done on the cross is so that you might live a holy life. No longer that life that you received, of course, from your forefathers. That is your sinful nature. And perhaps Peter is speaking here specifically to folks that he's writing to about the life he knew they lived in paganism or something like that. Or, or maybe he's talking about Jews too who received from their forefathers these endless traditions, but traditions that led them away from God. You say, you've been, you've been ransomed from that to a, a, a new way. No longer the, the futile way, you see, but a new way. A new way has been opened for us through the blood of Christ. Ransom from futile ways that we might walk the fruitful way. Not futile, but fruitful. New way. Now, when my wife and I were married, it became quite clear that we had different ways of doing things. You ever find that, that people have different ways of doing things? When I grew up, we didn't have much water on the farm. I may have told you this before because it's been such a traumatic thing in my life. Uh, when I grew up, we didn't have much water on the farm, and I think we had to dig well after well. We, I think we had seven wells growing up on the farm, and still we didn't have water. And uh, so when we washed the dishes, we took them right from the soapy water, and we put them in the dish rack to dry. We had one sink. You need to save water. But my wife, you see, she came from a different way of doing things. There was a sink to wash dishes, and there was a sink to rinse dishes. And never did you put a dish in the dry rack until it had first been rinsed through that water. And it took, uh, took some time for me to get used to that way, actually. Uh, but there isn't really a law for washing dishes. Um, and sometimes it's not so easy to remember that. Now, eventually, for the peace of the family, of course, I adopted her way. But the point is this. Uh, sometimes we get confused about what is our way and what is the biblical way. And we get confused that, you know, to be a Christian is somehow just adding Jesus to the way we're already on. The Bible says, no, you don't add Jesus to your plans and your way. Jesus transforms your futile way into the fruitful way. He doesn't sign up to be a, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, co-pilot in your life, you know, and you're struggling at the wheel, who's going to go? No, he, he is the pilot. He takes over the plane. Here is where Peter helps us, friends, for the Christian who has received grace, their living will be marked out by holiness of life and the fear of God. That is, throughout their life, throughout all their conduct, they have an eye for, a sense of, the holy uh, awesomeness of God and a, and a reverence for God. Fear of God all your life, right? All your life you're to have that. Never lose that. A sense of the awesomeness and reverence towards God. Now, our problem, of course, is that we live in the fear of men rather than the fear of God. Friday, from the Alliance Defending Freedom, the U.S. Supreme Court today in Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health finally overturned the disastrous deadly Roe versus Wade. This is a decision, says Alliance Defending Freedom, of a lifetime that will save tens of millions of lives. The stakes could not have been higher. Roe led to the death of more than 
2,360 children in America every single day, 861,000 a year, over 42 million since 1973, at least allowed for it, condoned it, sanctioned it. But now, says Lions to Many Freedom, Roe is gone and more children will live, full, unique lives, we pray. The decision overturns nearly 50 years of egregiously wrong legal thought and puts an end to the Supreme Court's immoral justifications for the intentional killings of tens of millions. This was a decision filled with moral courage, they write, especially after the leak of the draft opinion and the intimidation directed at the justices. Two weeks ago, Bloomberg News reported this. The arrest of an armed man outside the home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh earlier this week marks a significant milestone in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court. Now that the justices and their families need permanent professional and close security, as they unquestionably do, there will be no going back. The court building at 1 First Street Northeast will continue its transformation into a garrison fortress, not the marble palace of the people's justice it was built to be. The individual and collective isolation of the justices will be deepened, distancing them further from the currents of ordinary life. Their lives are changed irrevocably. This now inevitable development isn't just bad for the justices, it's bad for democracy, and it's terrible for the rule of law, which benefits when the justices can do their jobs with a minimum of spillover into their personal lives. For more than 200 years, the justices have mostly lived charmed lives. Why has that changed now? One reason can't be ignored. The man outside Kavanaugh's home who was charged with attempted murder was, among other things, reportedly incensed about the Supreme Court's impending reversal of Roe v. Wade. Its reversal, they write, two weeks ago, might inflame passions to an extent we can't yet anticipate. Today's feverish atmosphere is unusual, they write, but the consequences for how the justices live, how they live, will be permanent. Do you live in fear of man? Or do you live in fear of God? The Christian, you see, who's had all these blessings, Grace, salvation, the work of Christ on the cross, both for uh, salvation from our sin and salvation from a futile life, just going after our own passions. Oh, the Christian, Peter says, conducts their whole life in exile on this earth with this reverence and awesome sense of the presence and worthiness of God, not of man? That's a good question to ask in our country. What is more fearful to you? The rage of the culture, which is in rebellion against Christ, his word, and his kingdom, but will never prevail. Is that fearful to you? Or are you fearful of the displeasure of a holy, righteous, awesome, sovereign, majestic God whose word is eternal, whose son was crucified and risen, whose love is demonstrated to you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you who will reign forever and ever and before whom every knee will bow and tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you fear man? Or do you live your life here in the United States of America because of the work of Jesus Christ in the fear of God. You know, a lot of people say that the church is failing to teach their children. Uh, I disagree. I think we're doing a great job. The question is, what are we teaching our children? 
Someone wrote this. The problem does not seem to be that churches like us and all the churches of our country are teaching young people badly, but that we're doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what we really believe. Namely, that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. Friends, in the United States of America and many a church, it's by our disobedience to God, our lack of reverence for God, our lack of awe for God, our lack of any kind of sense or desire that because he is holy, we are to be holy because we're in union with Christ and fellowship with him. It's by our disobedience to God we are teaching our children loud and clear. God is not worthy. He's not worthy of all your conduct, all your speaking, all your days. He's not worthy of all your money and all your loves and all your passions. No, he's, he's good, but he's not, he's not great. And he's not holy. And I don't live as a mom or dad before him with reverence and awe all my days. And so children, you know, neither do you. No, no. Mm -mm. Therefore, you see, if you and I have received grace and salvation, there will be, says Peter, by God's grace, holiness of life. That is a life separate from sin, separate to God. And there will be a life lived in the fear of God all our days. That is, with his overwhelming sense of the awesomeness and the reverence that is due to the God who has given his son, shed the blood of his son, so that we might be saved from sin and from that futile life before we met Christ. May it be so. May it be so for me. May it be so for you. Oh, and may it be so for all the churches in the United States of America, even as we give thanks to God for his grace to us as a nation. Because again, no heart was ever changed by a government decree. It will only be his Holy Spirit through the gospel changing the hearts and the lives of men. Maybe so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Lord, we're talking about the grace that has come to us. Oh, the prophets, the angels are so jealous of what we have today revealed to us, what you've done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, ransom from sin, ransom from a futile life, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation with new loves, new thoughts, and a new life. Help us, Lord, we pray. To know that this, therefore, is for us. Because we have put our faith and trust in Jesus. This life is for us. That we might bring you glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.